Hello and welcome to the Brainstream Podcast. I'm Harrison, here with my co-host Colin. Say hello. Hello. On this podcast, we talk about all things neurotech and building a brain-controlled future. Today, we have Dr. Nicholas Vachikoras, who is the founder and CEO of Neurosoft Bioelectronics, a neurotechnology company developing, in their words, the next generation of soft and plantable electrodes to interface seamlessly with the nervous system. He received his Bachelor's of Science in Microengineering in 2012, his Master's of Science in Microengineering with a minor in Biomedical Engineering in 2014, and his PhD in Stretchable Central Nervous System Neural Interfaces in 2019, all from EPFL, which in English is known as the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Lausanne. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here. So we gave you a little bit of an intro, um, but we would like if you could elaborate on that a little bit more um, and tell us more about your background, um, how you got started in this field and where the passion came from. Mm -hmm. With pleasure. So actually, it started very early on in high school. I was really focused on the sciences and, uh, and more like technology engineering. And uh, on the last year, I had my first course in kind of biology, looking at the five senses from a more systemic perspective and the neuroanatomy. And that's what really got me excited about combining technology with biology, which sounds very obvious today, but uh, which was a bit less uh, 15 years ago. And so my actually, I wanted to do a kind of a retinal implant at the very beginning. And so I kind of focused my studies based on that dream, if I can say so. And I was recommended to go into microengineering, where you learn a bit more hardcore engineering, pretty much everything. So as one of our professors were saying, uh, you you know uh, nothing about everything. Uh, so about, you know, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, programming, chemi chemistry, etc. So that was quite, uh, so that was really uh, something I wanted to do from the beginning. And that's why I did my studies at TPFL in microelectronics. And uh, during my master's, which is uh, the very first year, I uh, decided to really start working uh, actually on neural interfaces. So until then I was only focusing on the engineering side. And uh, and this is where I joined Professor Stéphanie Lacour's laboratory, which is the laboratory for soft electronic interfaces. And this is where I really discovered kind of the, you know, state of the art technologies and what she was trying to do, uh, which is basically making soft electrodes to interface with the nervous system instead of having these kind of rigid metal disks. And so this is something that started now eight years ago. And very quickly, I decided that this is something I want to bring to the clinic and kind of do a startup company around this. And so I decided to do my PhD from a strategic perspective. It was seen more as a kind of free R&D for four years where I can develop the IP and really work on the te technology. And so basically, when I finished the PhD in 2019, so almost three years ago, this is where we spin off Neurosoft and really focus on kind of the next step, which is bringing the technology to the clinic. Very cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and Neurosoft specifically, so the software, the electrodes that you've worked with have specifically been with brain surface electrodes, right? So yeah. So actually, so to be honest, the, the, so it was always surface electrodes, but not for the brain. At the very beginning, we were using them for spinal cord. Uh, you know, it sounds a bit more obvious to want something stretchable that, you know, moves along the body when you think of some parts that move a lot. So the spinal cord was really the first application. And then we moved towards the brain. And we also have done some peripheral nerve uh, work, but uh, yeah. the very beginning was really on the on the spinal cord. And actually, it started with another professor, Grégoire Courtin, who uh, it focuses on uh, spinal cord stimulation to uh, 
you know, allow people who are tetraplegic or paraplegic to walk again. And so a lot of the preclinical animal models that they did was using these, uh, these electrodes. So this is where we gathered a lot of the data. So, so a lot of common electrodes um, that have been used in stimulation or in recording mm -hmm. um, in the peripheral nervous system have had issues with uh, migration. Mm -hmm. Right. So where the electrode or you implant something into, you know, uh, the body and uh, the body essentially pushes it out and moves it over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, have you run into any of those issues at all with the Neurosoft um, electrodes um, or have you how did you, I guess, solve that problem uh, specifically in the peripheries? Um, so periphery is the one we did the, the least, at least myself, it was more of my colleagues, but in, in general, we, we tried to, you know, use sutures for the cables. Now one mm. advantage. So I, I think the problem is the big issue that we have with our technology is because everything is about how the mechanics make it better. Uh, using animal models add a layer of complexity for, for miniaturization and is not as relevant as in humans. So you might have a curve that works very, very well in rats because just everything is smaller. And so you might not see a difference, you know, in having something conformable, but then when you go into humans, you will start observing big issues that you've never seen. So I would say we did have these issues and I think it's more because of the animal model and more about um, uh, the technology, but indeed we expect it because our electrodes are softer. So their elastic modulus is lower and they're thinner. Uh, they can kind of stick by capillarity on the surface of tissues. So I think that provides also some kind of stability. Uh, gotcha. But to be honest, it's still, you know, you still need to, you know, suture the, the cable somewhere. I mean, you still have these, uh, these issues, uh, same on the brain, but, um, sure. yeah. Yeah. So before we get, uh, too much farther into yeah. this, just for our audience, could you give us a little bit of the background of how, um, of, of what types of electrodes are currently being used and sort of mm -hmm. the development of that and where the importance of bi more biocompatible electrodes comes from and then sort of how that caused you to start Neurosoft. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if we talk about surface electrodes, um, so I'm not going to go into UTA rays or any deep electrodes, but basically it's usually large, so two, three millimeter diameter metal discs that are a few hundreds of microns in thickness, and they're usually wired by hand and encapsulated in a relatively thick and stiff silicone matrix. And so basically it's handmade, it's quite large, it's not scalable. So if you want to use the same technology to make a hundred micron diameter electrodes, not easy or impossible. And the entire device is relatively stiff and rigid. And so the issues, so one of the big hypotheses that was started almost 10 years ago, and now a lot of labs are going into that direction is first of all, it doesn't allow good conformability with complex surfaces. So the spinal cord is obviously one, you can have compression of the spine if you have something rigid. Same for the brain. Uh, one of the big issues when you have electrodes on your brain is you create compression. Uh, it can, um, because the brain is something that is always moving, not as much as the spinal cord, but you can basically imagine kind of having a panna cotta that is constantly under motion and then you kind of restrain the movement with a rigid, uh, device on top. Um, and this friction, we believe also causes a lot of scarring. So basically this foreign body reaction where you basically start having scar tissue building up around the electrode, which is something you see a lot with devices when they're implanted in humans. And so a lot of work that has been done, people, first of all, in, in vitro, they've people work a lot on different types of substrates. And so people have observed that if you have softer substrates, you have, you know, better, um, 
proliferation of cells, they're more happy. So that's definitely something that uh, people have observed in vitro. And in vivo, we've observed in our preliminary animal studies that these software devices uh, do not uh, generate as much scar tissue. So from a biocompatibility point of view, and we really think is, we, we know that cells uh, sense mechanical strain. They, 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 are, they sense the mechanical environment. And the fact that our devices kind of match the mechanical properties of the dura matter, which is this protective layer around the, the brain. Um, so our device is not as soft as the brain itself, but it's as soft as the dura matter. We think that, you know, it's le less recognized as a foreign body. And that's why... Uh, having something that is softer, we believe, is much better than what's currently used, which are these rigid metal discs. Very smart. Yeah, it, it's always seemed interesting to me that um, one of the leading tactics for invasive brain-computer interfaces are these sort of rigid electrodes, right? Because mm -hmm. the brain moves so much throughout yeah. the day when you're walking around or... Mm -hmm. Um, and all I could think of when I, when I first got into this field was, well, how are they stopping scarring from these rigid electrodes? Um, when people are sort of jostled around yeah. or anything like that. Um, so I think this approach definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and again, I mean, scar tissue is not like a, you know, a killer problem, but typically, and that's a problem you also observe with penetrating electrodes. And I'm talking about this because this is what we have mostly in the clinic today. Uh, the only surface electrode that is chronically implanted is probably uh, neuropace and uh, auditory brainstem implants. But even for deep, deep brain stimulation, you observe this scarring. And usually the only impact it has is that it forces you to increase the current to stimulate just to go above this barrier. But it is an issue. And, and then sometimes it can cause failure. So a lot of failures in spinal cord devices and brain implants can be due to uh, this scarring that starts creating mechanical stresses at the connector of the cables and leads to failures. So it is uh, an issue. That's, in that's interesting. And so with this, we're talking primarily about ECOG, right? Electrocorticography, is that where you would say this device comes in or would you define it differently? No, exactly. So that's how we, uh, yeah, we define it for the brain and on the spinal cord is kind of a paddle that is, uh, so on the spinal cord is epidural, but on the brain it's typically subdural, so under the dura. But yeah, that, that's where I focus. But I think what, what I'm describing here is valid for penetrating electrodes too. So if you see like the Utah ray, which is even harder than what's done on the surface electrodes, which are really silicon shanks that are, you know, hundreds of gigapascals in elastic modulus, then, uh, you know, people are trying to make them softer, Neuralink being one of them. So, you know, making thinner uh, and or softer is typically the strategy that is being uh, looked at by researchers and now companies around the world. So it applies to everything, I would say. And by softer, a big component of that, kind of what you're talking about is flexibility, right? Ability yeah, so, yeah, so the way I define it is a combination of th uh, thickness, so thinner, and uh, materials that have a lower elastic modulus. So it's a combination of these two things. So mechanically speaking, is we, we talk about bending stiffness, which is kind of a parameter that takes into account these two components, which we re regularly talk about flexibility, but yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't realized how stiff ECOG electrodes really are, the electrode arrays, the traditional ones anyway. So, I, um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I mean, locally they are, I mean, at the electrode site, you know, they, they are quite stiff. Uh, the silicone 
in between the electrodes might not be as stiff as the electrode itself, but still it constrains movement. And what's interesting is people, so that's more anecdotal, but talking with neurosurgeons who put them on the brain have told us that they see more complications when they put these electrodes on very curved parts of the brain versus flatter parts. So that's kind of an indication that, you know, the fact that it cannot conform to complex curvatures, you know, creates compression, which makes sense. Uh, and they've, for example, observed much more uh, hematomas in very curved regions than others. So that's kind of anecdotal, uh, you know, things that people have not looked into in detail uh, statistic statistically in the clinical studies, but seems to indicate which, if you think about it, makes sense that something that can conform and then is softer, thinner, would reduce all these complications, uh, which is not only compression of the brain, but just breaking, breaking blood vessels at the surface of the brain. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Yeah, not something that you want to do. No. <laughs> breaking the blood-brain barrier with this. Um, exactly. Breaking blood vessels. But um, how many how many electrodes do you use in these devices? Does that change? And where do you plan on deploying these in the brain? Are these all surface cortical? Or will you tuck yeah. some in a little bit deeper? Yeah, so at Neurosoft, we decided to focus only on surface. So we're not planning anytime soon to go into deep brain or intracortical. So we don't want to penetrate any tissue. And so, and then of course it depends on the application. So we can talk about it later, but we have kind of two products. The first one is a family of devices, which is basically electrodes that can be used for pretty much whatever you want for recording or stimulation for up to 30 days, typically for epilepsy monitoring. And here I would say the range of electrode sizes that we want to bring to the clinic is between one to 64. We could scale up to 128 later on, but then you want to probably change the type of connectors you're using. And then for other applications, within that range. So I would say maybe up to 128, uh, but for what we do, that's kind of the upper limit that we think is necessary for the applications we're looking at. And these are mostly uh, recording, correct? So not, not any stimulatory? No, actually they, it's both. So, oh, okay. uh, so even the subdural electrode for less than 30 days is bidirectional. So it's for recording and stimulation, hmm. yeah. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, so so it's used mostly in, uh, so I was saying epilepsy, but it's also used uh, during brain tumor surgery. So it's more of a kind of an intraoperative device. So it's not implanted per se, but typically if you, uh, the way it's used is when a patient has a brain tumor and you want to make sure you don't damage any parts of the brain that are near the tumor that you might break or damage, especially if it's your, it's your motor cortex, for example, that allows you to move your hands. So the, the whole goal is you use these electrodes to kind of map the brain areas to identify them. And so, for example, if it's the motor cortex, you're going to stimulate the, the, the cortex and then you're going to record uh, electrical activity from the muscles of the arms. And that will tell you, OK, there's a pathway here. I want to be careful. And then if you're near the somatosensory motor cortex and you do the opposite, you stimulate electrically with needles, the arm of the patient and you record evoked potentials on the somatosensory cortex. So that's an example where you use the electrode both ways. Interesting. So sort of an improvement to this traditional, um, the traditional surgery for brains where they would go in with like a little piece of like a literal, little, uh, metal tipped stimulator right and they literally like poke parts of the brain and exactly. see if the person's is uh responding in a certain way to make sure that they're not harming somebody so you guys are cutting out the middleman and basically saying 
uh, that's sort of barbaric. <laughs> we're going yeah. we're going more scientific into this. <laughs> no, no. So it, it, it's a tool that is sometimes used in conjunction. The idea of the electrode is that you can keep it there all the time. So kind of the way it's used is you put the electrode where you think the motor cortex is, and you just check with the with the evoked uh, EMG activity, so the electromyography, so the muscle activity in your arms. And what you do is you send a pulse every second, and then you look at the EMG every second that is elicited. And you do that constantly, and as soon as the person looking at the screen sees a decrease in the EMG activity, then they're like, okay, stop what you're doing. You're starting to damage parts of the brain that allow you to control your arm. So that's how it's used. So it's a bit more practical than having a hand you know, holding these electrodes. You just put it on the surface. Yeah, so basically, as we were saying, but with these bipolar electrodes that you can hold as a pen, so it is practical for some things, but as I said, sometimes it's better to have an electrode that is constantly at the surface of the brain, where you just stimulate every second, you record the uh, electrical activity from the arm, someone is looking at it, and as soon as you see a decrease in the response in the uh, electric uh, signal of the muscle in the arm, then you know that the the surgeon is probably touching some neurons, you know, that are controlling your, your arm. And so you can basically be like, okay, stop what you're doing, which is, a, you know, a more continuous kind of monitoring. And of course, in that context, you need something that is, you know, put on the surface of the brain that you don't need to touch. So, so that's how it's typically used. Yeah, that makes sense. I imagine you'd have better accuracy with that if you want to go backwards too, right? If I want to go stimulate the same area. Yeah, exactly. Um, that I did before. I don't have to go try to find it again. I can just you know, also, hit yeah. the specific lecture. That's interesting. And so what does what does Neurosoft make in the, pro in the process? So obviously the electrodes and the grid itself, um, but does it have any other accompanying hardware that goes along with that or integrate into existing yeah. systems? So for this first product that we call the Soft ECOG, which is basically the cerebral electrodes. So here the idea is we only make the electrode and we make an adapter. So the good thing with that setup is that uh, you don't need any active electronics that are implanted. So you basically have a computer that is kind of already existing in the UR, which is called a intraoperative neuromonitoring unit that can record and stimulate. And even though a lot of different companies make them, they all have the same type of connectors. So what we provide is an adapter that is an electrical adapter that goes from our electrodes to that system that is kind of universal. And that's pretty much it. So the idea is that this system, our electrode is compatible with any system that exists in the hospital and it's ready to use. There's no you know, requirements for training except getting used to the softness of the electrodes. But it's, well, so it's kind of all ready to use. There's no additional software. You don't have to change anything on the hardware. So for the first device, we only provide the electrode and this adapter. Very cool. Sense. So you guys are shooting for out-of-the-box compatibility with sort of industry standards and exactly. trying to make their whole lives easier, essentially. Yeah, for this first device, the, the, the really the goal of the first device is more strategic point of view is getting this thing as quickly as possible. That's why having something for less than 30 days is a very nice use case because from a regulatory perspective, much faster timelines to, to market. And the fact that you do not have to worry about any active electronics, which is usually what costs $100 million for 10 years, yeah, is a huge right. plus. So for us, it's really a way to demonstrate a full product that is kind of ready to be sold, that can be used by everyone very quickly. And so where are you in that timeline? 
of so, development when did development on this specific device start and when do you hope to roll it out yeah so it took longer than expected the main uh, component Everything always does so. yeah so, <laughs> no but uh, one thing that is very special about what we do is that we manufacture our electrodes ourselves so we had to put in place the entire manufacturing line so we really have to we, we basically receive raw materials we use we receive gold pellets platinum pellets we receive raw silicone in two parts and we basically have to develop the device from there so it's very interesting but as you can imagine setting up uh, good manufacturing practices and all the equipment took a lot of time especially that happened during covid so we there was huge delays with machines that we had ordered we work in clean environments so basically we set up all the manufacturing and we're currently started now what we call verification validation activities, which is basically a, a word to, to describe all the testing that is preclinical that would demonstrate the safety and the performance of the device before it can be uh, cleared in the US by the FDA. So it typically is biocompatibility testing, sterilization, packaging, cleaning, mechanical, electrical testing, all these things. So we are Starting the, we started this process with pilot studies at the moment, and basically for the next uh, 12 months, we will be running these tests. And if everything goes well, we expect to have all that data ready to be sent to the FDA within the next 12 months. And hopefully, uh, if everything goes well within three to six months afterwards, we would get FDA clearance for our devices. So are there any other devices that Neurosoft is working on, um, or what is a roadmap that you plan to work on? Yeah. So, so as I was describing at the very beginning about how soft is better from a more like biocompatibility perspective, of course, we wanted to show the full advantage of the technology in a chronic device, which would be implanted not only for 30 days, but really permanently, which is where we believe we can bring the more value. And so it took us time to find the right application, but we've identified uh, the one that we really like, which is tinnitus, which is basically this ringing sensation in your ears. And it's interesting disorder because everyone has experienced it at one point in their life. Typically, when you go to a loud concert and you go back to bed at night, you can hear this kind of sound. So, of course, you're not going to put a brain implant for this if it's just you know, uh, for one evening. But for some patients, it's very severe. It lasts forever. It's constant when you sleep, when you you know work. It's kind of like chronic pain. And a lot of these patients, uh, around 7% of them, uh, attempt to commit suicide every year. So it's a huge problem, and no one has solved it. Basically, the main products on the market is headsets or earring aids that try to cover up the noise. Again, it can work well for mild no, uh, levels of tinnitus, but for very severe ones, it doesn't work. And so what uh, we're trying to do is build up on some clinical data and fMRI data where people have identified brain regions that seem to be hyperactive in a lot of these patients, which seem to be the cause of this uh, tinnitus sensation. And what's very interesting, that's the reason why we like this application, is that the, the, these brain targets are located uh, in what we call the sylvan fissure, which is kind of one of these sulci or valleys at the surface of the brain. So it's extremely hard to access because it's kind of a bowl. So you need something with a that is flexible to have a good contact, but you also want something that is soft because you have a lot of vasculature. So if you have any rigid component that could you know, compress the brain, break a blood vessel in that region, it could be a huge issue. And so this is why we like this application because we believe that uh, there's a 
a lot of hope based on clinical data that it would work to stimulate that region. And there has been patients who've, who've been tested for with rigid electrodes, but the electrode technology is just not there. And that's kind of the perfect scenario for us. It, it's a very large population that we could help. And we believe that the main bottleneck is the electrode technology. It's uh, it's just, it's a huge, it's a huge problem. I have a family yeah. member that, um, that suffers from this and, and I know that it's, uh, very dysregulating from for her and yeah. you know i mean it's it's a good it's a good example that, that you talk about like we can all experience this from going to a concert and, mm -hmm. and knowing what that feeling is but not having it go away is you know, in, incredibly difficult yeah. and so and there really aren't great solutions out there as you also identified um, it was interesting we talked about this a little bit before but there was a commenter on one of our videos one of the bci guys videos that was asking if the Neuralink device will be used to treat tinnitus. And so it's, uh, it's, I'll, I'll be happy to point him to you guys once that's something that's, that's up and running because yeah. um, I know that he, he sent us an email later uh, going into some more depth about the difficulties that he's facing. Um, and I wasn't able to say that Neuralink was working on that, but it's cool to know that there are people out there in the field working. So yeah, I think there's a, a lot of potential because you know, people have been trying to address the issue from the ears, which kind of makes sense. But uh, I think more and more people are trying to look at it from the brain perspective. So you're almost solving it the, the way that doctors are solving phantom uh, limb syndrome, whereas you're stimulating the areas that are specifically don't have a place to connect to essentially anymore. Yeah. So I would say the mechanism of how this works is kind of still unknown. There's hypothesis and I'm not an expert into kind of the mechanism of action and understanding exactly how it works. But uh, indeed, uh, that's kind of the approach. So our approach is really about you know, going to the source of the problem. So usually it's the brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so I'd like to, uh, just being cognizant of time here, transition yeah. over to uh, a, another section where I want to talk about your experience as a neurotech entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So first, if you could just describe for us the journey from academia to starting your own company and becoming a CEO, that would be great because we get a lot of questions about the differences between academia and industry, and it seems like you'd be in a great position to speak to that, starting your own company. Yeah. And I'm happy to, to describe a bit my journey. But so as I said before, it was something I really wanted to do from the very beginning. And uh, actually, when I started the EPFL, so during my bachelor's, I already started some contests uh, and the kind of business plan uh, competitions, pitching. It was not I was not pitching at all about my BCI. It was really about random projects that we had in mind during our bachelor's. But it was a great way to kind of get used to it. And I think the really eye-opening moment was... Um, we, we, it was a competition about microelectronics and we basically had to take a sensor and make a device out of it. So we did that kind of a bracelet that has this inertia sensor that you, and the idea, which sounds very dumb today, but 10 years ago, it didn't exist. It was, you can move your arm, recognize the movement and perform an action. So that was kind of the idea. And we won the competition in Switzerland and we went to the finals in China. And during the, in front of the jury, we basically presented our PCB layouts and the algorithms that we put in place. And then we realized they were asking us questions about, but what's your SWOT analysis? What's your market? What, do you have patents? And these are all words we didn't know about. And we realized they didn't understand anything we said to them. They were not engineers. They don't know anything about uh, PCA or about uh, PCBs or anything. And so this is where I realized there's an entire other world 
accept technology that is very important. And, uh, and so basically for them, if they see the thing working, they trust you on the technology, but they want to know about the market. So that was kind of the first, you know, way for me. So of course we didn't win the competition in China, but it was a great thing to, to experience very early on. And so basically I decided to take a lot of business courses, uh, learning about IP. Uh, and of course, when you do a medical device company, it's not only about the business, it's also about clinical regulatory and quality affairs. And so I got prepared, I would say, during my studies at TPFL. And then when it was time to start the company three years ago after my PhD, it went quite seamlessly. I had already tried to get some to get some grants. We started working with consultants and we really kind of dived into it relatively. It was a smooth transition, uh, but we were very lucky to have um, the money to basically pay consultants who really accompanying us through the journey. And that's something that I would also recommend is even if you have people doing a lot of the work for you, I think it's important to be very involved into this because it allows you to really learn about it. So we were not passive about, oh, please give me this document, but we're trying to really do it ourselves so we can really learn something. So that's how it went. So really during the studies, learning about it, and then we spinned off the company after the PhD. It was kind of my plan from the beginning. And that's something also another CEO recommended is before I started my PhD to really tell my PI, look, I'm going to do a PhD, but I'm not interested in into academia. I'll do my first share of papers. But, you know, I think it's important to be aligned on, on these things, especially when you're doing a PhD with the goal of doing a startup company, because you want to make sure you have the right support from the PI, because it can be very difficult afterwards if you're not aligned on the next steps. And so that's something I really took care to clarify at the very beginning. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people struggle with that and trying to figure out which route they want to go. And it's, it's yeah. not that you have to only pick one, you can go back and forth. But it's a, you know, it's, it's a big decision early on in, in career. And so um, I, it seems like a lot of your background and just natural uh, business interest motivated that. But are there other factors that you would recommend people look at, look inwardly to figure out uh, which route might be better for them? Yeah, I think one thing you really need to, to be comfortable with, and this is kind of a big lesson I learned, is you need to be willing to do everything. <laughs> and so it's not only about the technology. It could be admin stuff, writing contracts, uh, reading patents, uh, making payments on the back account, <laughs> uh, having to set up insurances for the company, uh, having to do quality affairs, regulatory affairs, clinical affairs. So I think... And a lot of people love doing the technology, but hate doing a lot of these things, writing documents. And I think for a medical device company, especially, and even more so if it's an implantable device, you need to be psychologically ready to kind of make the sacrifice uh, until you can get a big team to you know, do it with you. So I think you need to, to be aware of all these things. Uh, and and again, I, what I'm going to say, it's probably what you hear every every single day, but you know, you need to be motivated and to be it for the long run because it takes a lot of time. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this seems like a common um, problem where people sort of have a, the similar issue that you have where, you know, they're really interested in the technology. Mm -hmm. They really want to know about the tech and they really want to know about all that stuff. And they finally get to a point where they ha finally make something or they, they work on something that they think could actually benefit people a lot. Yeah. Uh, and then they get to a point where they want to start their own company with it. And they realize like, oh, crap, like there is a lot more to running a company than just yeah. um, having a device that works really well. <laughs> exactly. Um, and a lot of people sort of, 
forget that. Um, I think, especially when they're uh, in this this maker mode, uh, yeah. you know, this mode of I want to make cool stuff and help people out. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and it's a, it, you know, it's it's commonplace to say that entrepreneurs have to to wear many hats, especially in the beginning. Exactly. You have to do a little bit of everything. But I think what you what you talked about too, and what it sounds like you you know you said was a learning point for you was you have to learn to speak the languages of many different disciplines as well. Exactly. Right? Because when you come from a heavily technical background, when you come from neuroscience or electrical engineering or whatever, or microelectronic engineering. Um, you know, you have your bubble where everybody starts to think that some set of language is understandable and basic, but then you go outside of that, talk to business people or people in another discipline, and exactly. you have to learn how to re-explain all of these things in a way that is understandable for the, the general population without like dumbing it down, you know? Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things that, that we try to do with BCI guys is try to take the complex topics of neurotechnology and make it as accessible as possible to people and that is you know it's 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 an interesting challenge and it's and it's exciting to try to look at a multidisciplinary field like neurotechnology because mm -hmm. you have the opportunity to learn in in a bunch of different areas and it's it's hard especially because sometimes it feels like you know not only do you have to be knowledgeable of a very complex field and multiple fields be very knowledgeable of multiple fields but you then also have to, you have to be a jack of all trades expert of nothing, essentially, Pretty much, while yeah. also being an expert. <laughs> it's like, oh man, there's, it's, it's a difficult task for sure. No, I think you, you, you want to reach that level where you're capable of understanding the other people's jobs. Because one thing that a lot of, I would say, employees are frustrated about is when their bosses ask stuff that they have no idea about and they have unreasonable expectations. And so I really tried to avoid this trap, which I hear a lot by my friends complaining about their everyday job. Um, and I really want to make sure that at least I've done it at least once. So I know how much time it takes and I know to set my expectations right. And I think that also you know, provides a much better and, uh, you know, uh, kind of environment for all the employees to know that, you know, I'm not asking something I've never done and I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> There's a reason behind what I'm asking. It, it all, it, it makes sense. <laughs> Trust exactly. me. <laughs> no, it's, it's so important. And that's kind of, so I'm in my last semester of undergrad right now. I've got three weeks left, so I'm very tired. But <laughs> so, so close to the end. Um, and I did a, an individualized major. So where I could just sort of take classes from different disciplines and, <laughs> and put it together. And thinking about that, wanting to go into like product management um, in, in neurotechnology, I had, you know, as a similar thing where I was trying to figure out, okay, what disciplines would be a part of this and how much can I get in each one of these where I can, I will be able to talk the talk and yeah. understand what they're doing. And that's, you know, that's sort of been the most important part of my focus. If I'm working with designers, make sure that I understand at least what goes into it. If I'm working with computer scientists, you know, be able to exactly. read what they're doing and, um, and that's a, an important thing that I think is overlooked sometimes, especially in management. Yeah, I have a lot of friends that complain about managers not, uh, you know, knowing what it takes for them to do a certain thing. So no, no, it's important. important I think it's both important, first, for the relationships with the other people who are working with you, but also it's important because no one knows everything about your business except yourself. And so if you don't know the field, you don't know what's relevant to tell them or not. And you might, you know, not say something just because you don't think it's relevant, but actually it's critical for them. And then, you know, they they miss on something, even though they are the best consultants in the world. 
and so that's why I realized, which is kind of the <laughs> hard swallow, uh, pill hard to swallow, which is you, just, you you cannot just delegate without knowing nothing about other people's jobs because you might miss mm. a lot of things. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of something we need to keep in mind. Accidentally create more problems than you're solving, right? Yeah, also. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, exactly. So that's a very good point. But it's good that you try, you know, to really learn about all the different jobs or you know competences you will need to bring your device to market i think it's so then uh throughout this sort of period of you know starting your company and Mm -hmm. and just getting started um what was the biggest and most important lesson uh that you've learned throughout that time as you transitioned sort of from academia into the entrepreneur space so definitely that part we've just described which is you know really having to learn everything and because a lot of times we kind of trusted blindly some very good consultants or employees or you know people we work with and then we realized that it backfired because you know they didn't have the full story and we and then we actually had to learn ourselves so that's something that if I had known from the beginning, I would be much more careful. The other big lesson for myself is, at least, and that's very specific to neurotech and implantable devices, is the startup world is huge. Medical devices is already a small niche within that. But then you have another niche, which is neurotech. And then you have an even smaller niche, which is implantable, which is not the most common neurotech devices. And then you have an even smaller niche inside implantable, which is what we call active implantable, where you actually have you know, batteries and active components. And so that's a very, very, very small niche. You know, it's not like orthopedic implants where we'll find thousands of experts all around the world simply because there's hundreds of companies doing it. And it's extremely hard, well, to find the right employees, to find the right consultants, people who've done it before, simply because not a lot of companies have done active implantable neurological devices. And that's something that I was really, really surprised about. Uh, even recently, I joined a you know, program for neurotech is like, finally, they're going to understand me. And then I realized there's maybe one out of 20 companies with myself who are actually doing active implantable. All the others are wearables, which is great. It's just that the challenges, the timelines and the budgets are very, very different. So that was a big lesson for me to take that into account. And of course, the biggest obvious example is with investors, not a lot of investors you know, we've talked to, when I was finding an investor who does medtech, was like, finally, perfect. And they're like, oh, you're doing implantable. Mm, that's kind of risky. We don't do that. I was like, okay, but what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah. So it's something to keep in mind that it's a very, very small niche. So do you have advice for people that might be going down a similar route? So maybe in a different hyper small niche of, of neurotechnology <laughs> or a different focus where how they can be able to relate to people in sort of the, the larger bubbles or be able to find mentors, train themselves. Out yeah. So I'm still struggling with this, but one thing that I've learned is try to reach out to as many people as I can to meet people. Uh, so for myself, who is being in Switzerland and trying to go into the US, uh, that helped a lot by joining any type of you know, accelerators or events, even if it seems kind of easy or, you know, you've passed that stage, it's still very, for example, I, I was in Cleveland a, a few few weeks ago and most of the people there were PhDs and I already had my company, but I still thought it was very valuable for myself to go there just because I could meet people and learn about, okay, who, because when you realize every field has is very small, you only have key people, they all know each other. And so once you 
get into the network, it goes very, very fast. I would say six months ago, I almost knew no one in the US about the field. And now I know, you know, at least 25 people who are very relevant. So it's just about getting into the network through any means you can. And I would say there's more than enough ways of interacting with these people through different programs, pitch competitions, contests. So yeah, that, that's one way. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting to me because everybody who I, we talk to who's interested in neurotech is surprised that neurotech is as small of a niche that it is, I yeah, think. Yeah. I, I, and like, it's crazy because all of us are like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. I would love to you know, spend <laughs> hours every day you know, researching more and learning more about mm -hmm. this stuff. Uh, whereas people outside the field don't even really know it exists yet, which is yeah. strange. You know, I, I think we're starting to get more into the mainstream discussion now. Um, and that's sort of been the goal of BCI guys and the goal of what Harrison and I are trying to do is no, and sort of push this out there and get people more interested in the subject. Because it's so interesting. And so many people actually that, that once they learn about it, actually find it interesting and want to learn more about it. Just seems like that exposure yeah. just isn't there yet. So it's interesting to hear that you actually have had that experience that that issue in the actual field as well oh no definitely and of course people like you or even you know companies like Neuralink who bring this you know to the mainstream media is extremely helpful uh of course there's a momentum that has to build up there's some inertia but i think we're, we're getting there uh but it's still not you know trivially easy it's it still takes a lot of effort to find the right right people and talk to the right investors and finding the right talent Definitely. But it's a really, really passionate and tight knit circle once you once you find the right people. Yes. Um, although it's only a handful comparatively to you know other industries or yeah. larger med tech in general, I've found um, and it seems like you've you've found that too, but just when you join groups, the level of enthusiasm is so high because it's only people that are willing to dedicate a ton of time and years and, and passion and interest to the mm -hmm. to the technology. And so that's one thing that I that I really love about it too. But yeah, yeah, we have a ways to go in the in the PR journey. I really want Google services to stop telling me that neurotechnology is not a word. We've got to <laughs> kind of get there first. But yeah. um, but we will. And I think it's a it's a really exciting time to be working in the field because although like if you talk to some seasoned researchers that have been around for you know 30 years working on this stuff, it's doesn't seem all that new to them, but in terms of where investment is coming from, it, it just, it feels like we are at the very, very beginning right. of what will be uh, an explosion, maybe a slow controlled ex explosion for a little bit, but an explosion into the future of what we can do with this tech. Definitely. Well, it's exciting. It seems like even old seasoned veterans in this field have picked up on the fact that, wow, this is starting to take off. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that yeah. that's really exciting to see. I think we're we're really at the beginning of a of a renaissance uh, with this technology. So very. No, cool no, I, I believe so too. I've seen a lot of uh, progress in that direction. So definitely, yeah. Very very yeah. cool. So when you're when you're working on this stuff, you know, as as we said, working in this field can have some challenges because you are breaking new ground mm -hmm. constantly because of how small it is. So what are some challenges, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've run into starting your company and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so one of the big challenges was um, 
first of all, managing no big teams or big teams, even small teams and uh, assigning the right tasks to every member of the team and making sure we are focusing on the right thing. That's not easy, especially when you don't have any background in management and you just did a PhD in, in technology. So that's something that was kind of hard to do. And of course, we've done a lot of mistakes. Uh, uh, with that respect. So at the beginning with my co-founders, we were always together at all meetings. And after six months, we're like, okay, maybe that's not the most efficient way of doing it. So then we started you know, defining tasks and responsibilities for each of us. So I think that came natu naturally, but it was definitely something that um, if we knew from the beginning uh, how to manage our time and uh, you know clarify who does what would have saved us a lot of uh, time and be more efficient. Uh, of course, you know, software that allows you to organize, you know, your plannings and all these things is definitely useful. Um, so that's one of the challenges that I found that easy to, to solve. Um, and then the, the other one is about uh, finding the right people uh, in terms of recruitment. That's not easy at all, especially when you don't have a lot of people who, who know the field. And you're always in between some, you, you want, you know, sometimes the two profiles that we really like is either the young person who just finished their studies, uh, who know nothing about you know the industry, but are extremely motivated, very, very smart, and learn very, very quickly. That's a great profile. But you also want people who have the expertise. So for example, one thing I heard a lot is you want your regulatory team to have gray hair. So uh, a lot of the things that we struggle with are very, very specific questions that are very hard to answer, even for the best people, if they haven't lived it themselves or have done it before. And so here it's really, again, about finding the right people, finding who has done it before, who can answer these questions and talking to, to them and trying to, to find them. So, you know, th that's, I would say, some of the main, uh, main challenges uh, that I have in the field. And then the last one, which I, is kind of still a challenge, but it's getting slightly better. Is linked to what I was saying before, is finding investors in our field. Uh, I would say neurotech for wearables is seems slightly, at least you know, uh, not too bad. But as soon as you do implantable, there's an entire new level of risk, and it changes mm. a lot of your timelines and the budgets, and that can scare off a lot of investors. So because of that sort of fear, have you looked at all into, you know, pivoting into non-invasive devices? No. <laughs> so I would say, I mean, that, that's maybe another topic. But for me, uh, I think the only way for someone to do a company uh, that is going to work on the long term is you need to be passionate about what you do. So it has to be somewhat selfish. You know, you're not, you cannot do something just because it's going to save the world, but you find it extremely boring because then you're going to stop after one year. <laughs> so for me, I, I, I say it out loud, it has to be a little bit selfish because that's the only way you're going to find the motivation to do it for 20 years. So for me, it was all about finding, and I was very lucky to find something that I love doing and I could, I've been doing for eight years and I can easily do for the next 35 years, but that is also you know, useful for humanity. And so for me, it's implantable devices. And even though it's hard, I like the complexity of having to juggle between, you know, you know, all the is issues you have when you have a device in the body, all the regulatory issues, the clinical issues, the quality issues. It's something I really like. So no, uh, at, we didn't think of going in non-invasive. The other reason is also our technology is much more suitable and has much more, you know, to, you know, better selling unique selling points 
only if you look at it from the invasive perspective. Right. So it's both. You have a of... huge value add for sure. Exactly. Um, so th that's the two things. So I'll be honest. It's also from a personal motivation, but also it makes more sense with the technology. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I do just want to quickly add in, in there. I think when people talk about invasive and non-invasive yeah. technology, there's always like the people talk about the trade-off of, oh, well, you know, invasive is quotes more dangerous, but yeah. the signal quality is better. And then when it's outside of the body, like it's just better form factor wise, but it's, you know, the signal isn't good, but that's not even true. A lot of the time, I think if we're talking about like in a medical scenario, it's more beneficial to have something that is located in, in one spot underneath the skull for a 30 day period than it is to have to put on a headset and have a caretaker do that every single day. And exactly. if there's gel, inject the gel, and then the electrodes are off in a, in a little bit. And so I, I do think that there are other benefits to invasive that sometimes we have to, to look past, which is like, it's a more more permanent solution than a, mm. um, than no, a no, invasive one. You're right. And it's also a psychological one for patients. If it's not visible, uh, you know, it's better for the well-being because first of all, you know, socially it's, uh, it's more comfortable, but also for themselves, they don't have a constant reminder every morning to put their headset or put the device on or having to recharge it. So, for example, there was a you know something we're looking into the companies uh, for our tinnitus devices. Should it be with an external headpiece or should it be all implantable? But then you have to change the battery every five years. And definitely, some patients would rather have a surgery every five years and not have a daily reminder that they have a disease that requires to put a headpiece or whatever. So. That's definitely along what you're saying. It's you know better from a medical perspective, but also I think uh, from a daily routine, if you don't have to worry about it, basically, I think it's great. So psychologically, it's almost yeah. easier to just have something put inside you. Exactly. Just forget and about then you, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you put it inside the body, then you, you, you need to design it in a way that independently of the patient's lifestyle, it's going to work. <laughs> Whereas if it's wearable, you you know you're gonna rely a little bit on the patient putting it correctly and right. uh, yeah, yeah. So very interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a very important point for adoption. Yeah. We had done a little bit of research prior talking to people with ALS and muscular dystrophy mm -hmm. about using some sort of a brain computer interface device and not and the look of the device mattered quite a bit to them, which which was interesting to me because they're already using other assistive technology yeah. like a wheelchair, but yeah. the wheelchair has become more accepted and wearing an apparatus on your head to read your brain waves is not quite mainstream yet. So yeah, no, uh, we'll get there soon. We'll get there. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> Someday. But yeah. No, no, it's um, a good point. Yes. So a couple more questions then. So what does your day-to-day -day life look like as a neurotech entrepreneur? What do you do? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is it's every day different, but usually it starts uh, when, within the first two hours of the morning. I've already received three or four emails and two phone calls about random stuff that I hadn't planned. So that's kind of typical. So usually I have, to, you know, I try to solve these issues and it could be at all levels. It could be a technology issue, a supplier issue, a manufacturing issue, uh, admin issue, payment issue, uh, meeting with an investor. So that's what I like. And Every single day is different. Some days I will be focusing on quality affairs. The next day I have to 
uh, start working on a clinical study and writing a uh, reviewing a document. The next day, I, I have to make payments on the bank account, and the day after, I have to uh, do a HR meeting and uh, interview someone for recruitment. So that's also why it's fun because no two days are alike, and that goes yeah, back to what we were yeah, so what we were saying about before, it's uh, you know you have to wear a lot of caskets and a lot of hats, and you know you have to be able to do a lot of different things. So I, I, there's no typical day, definitely not. Uh, and sometimes I'm like more focused on investors, and one week I'm gonna like okay, and yeah, now I have to work on quality, and I try to only do that during one week. Of course, it's impossible because you have calls and meetings, so it's really juggling between uh, different things. Um, yeah. Well, that gets us back to just the importance of passion and why you gotta yeah. pick something that you're doing you it for the right reasons. You yeah. will never be able to run that marathon without <laughs> really no. caring about it, with doing all that stuff. Exactly. So, 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 yeah, I don't have a clear cut answer, but I would say in general, I spend a lot of time on the phone and on calls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, how do you find team members that are able to match that? to to match that energy because obviously you have the the founder's energy which is where yeah. you know you're coming from it you're owning the idea um but then how do you how do you find people early on in the startup that are a good match the the, the best people we've had are people we had already worked with basically i mean it sounds <laughs> not surprising but for example uh, one of my main co-founders ludovic serex was our chief operating officer I've known him since the first year of The Bachelor. And I think it's important, first of all, because you have a level of trust. It's someone with whom I'm very, very comfortable at all levels in the sense that I have no filters with him, which I think is extremely important uh, in companies to be able to say everything that is on top of your mind and not be afraid of you know, how it's going to sound and how he's going to take it. So I think for me, at least one person like that in the company is critical. And uh, so that that's why I was happy that he joined uh, the you know the startup at the very beginning, even though he didn't do a PhD in neurotechnology at all. He did something completely different. So that's how I found. And then a lot of our employees, so some we had to hire. And here it's not always easy, but it's always a mix of looking at the past expertise and a good feeling. But also sometimes we hire, for example, students that we had worked with before as a semester project. Uh, during my PhD, for example, I had a lot of master students or bachelor students do projects for one semester in, our, in the lab. So that was a great way to, you know, see who are the people you, you want to have in your company in the future or not. So, and usually it's word of mouth, a lot of it, and um, recommendations. Uh, maybe it's not good to say that out loud, but it, it helps a lot. It's, uh, and it, it's usually, and it's, you know, it works quite well. Uh, we were, you know, we were never disappointed so far by having people recommended to us. So you were sort yeah. of able to use your university as an incubator of sorts to to find people and. Yeah, at least on the R and D side, definitely. But we've also hired people outside of the university, and it was usually either recommendations. And again, it goes back to having a good network. It's always interesting because in our field, even though you know we've I've been doing this for eight years, and every time we receive a CV or resume. Almost all the time, even if it's people from Japan or from the UK or the US, we can we know we have someone in common that I can call and ask about that person. Uh, and I think that's I, I got this technique a technique from uh, one of the jobs I had during my P, before my PhD, where the CEO was literally calling everyone on my CV. <laughs> yeah, 
but I think it's you know, it, I mean, that, you know, that's the best way to yeah. do it. You ask. Gotta be careful with those uh, references, recommendations. You put in there. But yeah, that's that, definitely. And and yeah, I mean, it, it keeps coming back to these same central themes that we have, which is networking, 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 yeah. passion, and you know, you better be prepared to do lots of different things and talk to to different people in um, in all different ways. So. No, exactly. So. If you work with a person or if you can talk to someone you trust who've worked with that person, yet usually it's a very good indicator. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Yeah. Um, so we are we are coming up to time here, but mm -hmm. I've got one more question that I'd like to ask you, which is what excites you the most about the future of neurotechnology? And so you can talk about like your direct discipline, but then I would also like you to go a little bit broader and like, you know, crazy into the future, maybe think of something that's a little bit outside of the scope of no no i mean uh, right so it, it might be something we've talked about in the past but i'm really excited about the hype there is around the field and how many more people are getting interested into it and i think uh it's going to help a lot for facilitating you know translation of our technologies you know people who if the fda has already done it 10 times then the 11th company coming to them is going to be a bit smoother uh, with suppliers if they've already worked with neurotech companies they're a bit more willing to, to work on it so for me, like if I look at it at my level, I think I'm excited by the hopefully that is going to facilitate our job. Uh, and then in terms of more like kind of, you know, big dream and what could happen, I think what well, it sounds again, maybe a bit too cliche what I'm going to say, but the, the combination of both machine learning and AI, a lot of advancements on there, but also on the microelectronics field, being able to miniaturize a lot of small electrical components are going to make these devices even less invasive. And I think that provides, uh, you know, huge uh, potential for you know devices that are more accepted and having people using them. And of course, you know, we, we focus on neurological disorders, but I'm, I wouldn't be surprised, especially if trends in AI and in microelectronics continue the way they have been in the past years, have devices that would be accepted even for, you know, just for the for fun, you know, for VR. Uh, texting uh, a lot of investors a lot two investors asked me once you know like can i drive my tesla with your device just by thinking uh, in 20 <laughs> years and i think today no but probably in 20 right. years uh, it, it's something that's going to be and i think it's exciting i think we're going to be able to do a lot of things of course you know there's ethical questions about all this and for now I, i'm mostly excited about how we could solve what i believe are some of the most devastating neurological disorders when you think of deafness blindness tetraplegic i think knowing that there's a solution for them i think that's you know kind of reassures me and you know you're a bit less scared of having this in the future if you know there's a solution to it yeah definitely i think that's a wonderful place to end thank yeah. you very much for no. talking to us um so this was uh, Nicholas Bachikoris, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Neurosoft. Thank you. Thank you so much.